when you have a, a mental health challenge, you think you're the only one in it. So it's important to know that you're not. And it's, it's important to know that things are, are temporary and they're not as bad as they could be. Hello and welcome back. It's Dr. Justin Black. This is just Black Talk. And this is National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. Yes, yes, yes. You feel the excitement. You can feel it. This is a this is a serious thing. I don't know how long this has been a thing, but this is an official month recognized by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And today we have a very special guest. And we're going to talk from a very personalized story about experiences with minority mental health issues. So today, without further ado, we have Tab Wallet. We're going to get introduced and let's go. Tab, say hi to the people. Hey! I don't even know what to say, JB. I'm so thank you for having me on the show. My name is Tab Wallet. I am CEO of Ideas Equal Income, a business development agency. So we help businesses get started from the ground up. I'm also a queer person of color who has mental health challenges. So I'm definitely a uh, minority mental health advocate for sure. So that's kind of where if you were to say the intersection of entrepreneurship and mental health, even though I think that's a little played out, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. How about that? Again, underselling. Yeah, sure. Sure. Entrepreneur and all this stuff. Tab is the puppet master, y'all. She does it all. Tab and I work together right here on this podcast. We work together with how we're trying to bring our message to you, shift these perceptions of Black America. Tab is brilliant. She's energetic. It's really something special that she's willing to share with us some of the components that make her who she is, some of the challenges and struggles that she's gone through with it, so that we can not only inform, but hopefully help others. Tab, let's get us started. Who are you? Where are you from? How did it all begin? That's so funny. Thank you. Thank you, JB. Look, if I get a little emotional, you know, so it's funny. Um, my name is Tabitha. My mom, she named me after Bewitched. I'm from Maryland. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. Um, <laughs> my whole life. And literally, I went to the hospital with my mommy-in-law the other day. And um, I, that's how I had to explain it, because that's kind of how old school white people get it. You know, that's just what yeah. it is. Yeah. Bewitched is your dad's name? You know, so it's like, yeah, so that's me. Um, I grew up in Anne Arundel County, if, every, if anybody knows in Maryland, and then grew up in Anne Arundel and Howard County, and then spent half of my life in Baltimore City. And so who I am is deeply rooted to my people, deeply rooted to the matters of social justice and black and brown people with respect to, I guess, love for all people. So I like to, you know, I'm just somebody who resonates love, but also understands the inequities that and the disparities that we have in black and brown communities. And so who am I? I'm just trying to be a a dope ass person and, and, yeah. and leave a mark on this world. And I think with why I love business and JBS working together, you know, um, we work together for branding. I like to look at us sometimes as David and um, Larry, like Seinfeld and um, David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it La- yeah. Larry Seinfeld and Larry, I'm sorry, Larry, Larry and, uh, David? Larry and uh, yeah. Jerry right. Seinfeld, man, because you're just that funny. And I think sometimes <laughs> um, when, we, when we bounce around ideas, I love, I love the work that we do. I love. Like you said, like what we're producing, you know, the end result. And I love the act of creating. And so I think with business, there's a lot of creation. And that kind of goes into tapping into that side of the brain that's also connected to mental health. So you blew past some stuff there about your history. You started with your mom, your mom's name. Give us some background on on both your parents and the relevance of that. Uh, And then we can talk a little bit about where you grew up and the relevance of that. 
That's a really good question. So my, what I used to say, my mommy's white and my daddy's black. I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm not, uh, I ain't come from New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> my mama white, my daddy black. That was so funny. What One day, guys, Tab told me, she said, she said, uh, <laughs> she said, everybody around here in my new neighborhood thinks I'm a little Puerto Rican boy. <laughs> they think I'm such a Puerto Rican boy looking at me. Because I just moved down to Charlotte, y'all. So from Maryland to Charlotte and, you know. A little culture shock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, growing up Anne Arundel County in the 80s, there was a lot of racial tension. Uh, Maryland is still a red state. So I think that there's so many underlying racial issues. Uh, My mother coming from a um, well-to-do middle-class, you know, neighborhood, a middle-class community. My family is Jewish, uh, Russian Jew, migrated here. And then my black side, um, they were forced here, right? And so uh, with both of those things together, both of those components, you know, I definitely have that rugged, you know, determination, willing to do anything, whatever it takes. But yeah, my dad, I wasn't raised with him, so I didn't really get exposed to my black culture at all until I was about, shoot. If y'all remember Save the Last Dance, let me tell you, the homie, I could not, I had no rhythm. I had no rhythm at all, okay? <laughs> Being raised by my wife. I couldn't clap on beat. I couldn't snap. Jesus. Yeah, it was awful. I had one of my one of my good friends. I finally started making black friends around. You know, I had some black friends, but when I really got into black culture, being raised predominantly white, I was really like high school and really being, you know, in a diverse school system, because in Anne County, a lot of times you might be one of the only people of color in the school. And so moving to, you know, uh, anyone familiar with the Columbia area, uh, it's a little bit more diverse. It's known for that. Tab, let me let me hop in for just a minute, because we want to give a little bit of the background on where you're growing up. You're talking about uh, Anne Arundel County. And Howard County, these are counties just like a south, southeast of Baltimore City. Anne Arundel County is where Annapolis, the uh, capital of the state, is located. And in Annapolis, Maryland, that's where we have the only memorial in this country of a name and place of the arrival of an enslaved African. And that's the arrival of Kunta Kente, Alex Haley's ancestor, which, of course, has been memorialized by the book and movie series Roots. Anne Arundel County has quite the history when it comes to racial history here in this area, as does Howard County, where we, you know, we have slave graves and Harriet Tubman museums and things like that. So people may not realize that, one, Maryland is technically in the South, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line, that two, outside of the city of Baltimore and, you know, the metro area outside of the D.C. area, it's a pretty robustly red state. Uh, we have a, a very rural area on the eastern shore. We we get a little bit more rural out uh, west in this in the state and even going north. So it's relevant. Um, and I think, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Some of those tensions linger in this area. And so being a mixed race kid undoubtedly had some challenges for you. You nailed it, JB. I think that going back right into the beginning of, of Tab, I grew up with a mother that had, uh, she has a mental illness. I wanted, my mom has a mental health diagnoses, right? She has multiple uh, mental illnesses and being raised by a white mother with a mental illness and the power of <laughs> my mom, she accused my dad of, you know, intimate partner violence or domestic violence back in the day. And for a black man in Anne Arundel County, taking him to court, he was never able to recover. That kind of spawned something in his life where he couldn't get jobs. He couldn't get um, 
He wasn't able to support himself. And so that kind of led into his own uh, compounded net of like trying to navigate life in ways that, you know, it's just unfair for for black folks still in general. That's a lot to unpack. I mean, you're talking about partner violence, uh, domestic violences, um, real or accused. Uh, and we, we talk about these things and it's easy to say I condemn this and I don't. But you're proof of some of the fallout of these things that goes unspoken, unseen when you have these kind of unfortunate events. And so obviously those have lasting effects on everybody involved. You hitting it, JB. And then, you know, the nature of mental illness. And, and I want to say this, too. If anyone has uh, parents that are struggling with mental illness, whether you as, a, as their child have a diagnosis or not, it's important to talk to a psychiatrist. We can get into that a little bit more just to, based on your family history. But also it's important that you have a support system if you are the child of someone who suffers from mental illness, because it's not fun. It can be very isolating. It can be very dark and gloomy. And so that was kind of my childhood. And my mom has uh, some paranoia and, and bless my mom's heart. I mean, she made me who I am. She did the best that she could. But even in raising me, you know, she was terrified of my father, you know, after this domestic violence thing. So even though he was always in a close proximity to where we live, just being in a small town or from Anne Arundel County, she would always say, you know, if you see your father, you know, never, never let him touch you, never let him see you. If he comes to the house, lock the doors, close the windows, he's going to kidnap you, molest you and keep you from me for the rest of your life. Wow. That's quite a lot. Yeah. And that's how I grew up. Right. So my mom would always reiterate. She kind of based on how she was raised and her past traumas, whether real or perceived. Right, JB. So it's like you, you don't really know what happened. But we know that there's a person who's who's really struggling. And so it made it so that growing up, she couldn't really take care of me. At six years old, I was doing my own hair. Um, my mom couldn't do like ethnic hair. So she said, so I was doing my own hair. I was packing my own lunches. We didn't really have that much money. I would pack a PBJ, apple and an orange, put it in a bag. And that was my life. Right. And so my mom was an insomniac. Uh, she would drag me out to bed at two in the morning to go to Dunkin' Donuts and play chess with the, uh, the old people. <laughs> Wow. And go to school, you know. Not necessarily um, the most uh, wholesome and stable environment. Yeah. Um, you talk yeah. about uh, childhood and, and, and diagnoses. Talk about how old were you when, when things started to manifest and, and what that experience was like. Good question. So go, going back to early childhood, um, I, I don't know about you, but like, JB, I have, and I, it might be because I'm dealing, I, I like to, I'm in the process of like healing and, and reintegrating myself and all the various pieces of me that have been fragmented. But I remember as as far back as like two years old, my dad leaving at two and, and simply because of the relationship with my mother, I think it was just uh, the mental health had a lot to do with it. Aside from them probably not being compatible, you know, it probably could have ended a little bit better, probably could have been some co-parenting going on. And then my mom was in this organization still exists. It's called NAFA, the National Association for Fat Acceptance. And so I was also raised in a culture where uh, my mother at the time was, I think you had to be at least 300 pounds to get into this group. Um, so I'm pretty sure she was close to 400 pounds. And so I kind of grew up with no dietary restrictions, <laughs> kind of just like eat what you want, go get the donuts. You have six, you know what I mean? In one sitting. So that played a part. But going back to childhood, um, there's a such thing as force feeding when you are in relationships, like almost like fetishes. So when you have like this group NAFA and you have women and men that are embracing um, or acceptance 
for fat people. It's also a place for people to date. And so when I was around three, my mom hooked up with this guy, this sleaze bag, and um, he force fed her, come to find out. And um, so that's like another eating disorder. And that caused her to go into, uh, I guess, some type of psychiatric uh, mental institution. And I remember visiting her there, not knowing what it was. My grandmother and grandfather were taking care of me at the time. At that time, like, and it's crazy because, I mean, some of these traumas, I mean, they go so deep. I can remember visiting my mom and, and being in the waiting room and still smelling the scented markers, right? Like going, um, going to visit her at like three years old. Another thing that came up during that time, which I found out later, is that when she was admitted to the, um, the psych ward, you know, they started asking her a series of questions and kind of getting down to what's happening, like really trying to diagnose her. Whatever they did to kind of evaluate her, getting to the point that she said that she was molested by her father, who was my grandfather, who was kind of my Superman throughout my life. And so I think from the beginning, I didn't really have a strong level of a foundation of trust in my life. My dad was not there. My mother was kind of out of her mind. Um, Later, I would find out that the person I put all of my trust into supposedly fucked my mother up, to be frank, um, molested her for a series of years, which it puts you in a, in a very hard spot because especially when someone has a mental illness, you can't tell them otherwise. You don't really know the degree in which it happened, but you there was her supposed uh, molester. And so that, that was a thing. I didn't know that part until later. And then, you know, I think the trauma really set in because while my mom was unable to really cope and raise me, she, she told me, Actually, recently, you know, we had some real candid conversations and for myself, for boundaries, for boundary purposes, for my healing, I've had to really push back. And I haven't really talked to my mom for about a year. I mean, we've had a couple conversations, but I told her once I moved to Charlotte, I needed time to heal because, you know, as she threw on my face on Mother's Day, you know, you're still struggling with things that happened 30 years ago. Yes, I am. I never dealt with them. Right. Tab, we got to take a whole uh, a little break here because you. First of all, you have the world's greatest memory because I can't remember last week. You talking about stuff that happened when you were okay. two years old. But you, you're, you're describing layers and layers of generational trauma at such an early age. So let's just exhale for just a second because I've been clutching the seat of my chair here listening to you because, wow, the things that some of us go through and the good fortune that others of us who don't go through that really have. Yeah. And you know, thank you, JB. And thank you for that. And you know what? And what's been happening recently in my life, because it is Minority uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. And I'm so big on that because even right now in my personal life, there are mental health crises happening. It never goes away. We're talking about kind of early life experiences that you've gone through that were traumatic. For I mean, there's no other way to really describe this as that's what it was. But talk us through what it looked like and felt like. What were some of the signs and symptoms that that maybe things weren't in sync in your life personally that led to you picking up diagnosis? Yes. So good question, JB. The last kind of younger childhood experience I had before things got crazy. So my mom and I'm I'm sorry, my grandmother and my grandfather, who were at that time taking care of me because my mom is a little out of her mind. and, And that's okay. Like I said, bless her. My grandmother sat with me. I was like four years old. And it was our night. We used to watch the um, the Friday um, TGIF. You know, you had Urkel, you had mm-hmm. everybody on. And that was our favorite thing to do. She sat down with me and she said, Tabby, I have to tell you something. And to this day, I remember she gave me like a bowl of green grapes and those old school wooden bowls. And she goes, listen, um, I'm not going to be here 
much longer, you know? And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> As a kid, I'm laughing. What you mean? You're my favorite person. You ain't going nowhere. She goes, well, you know, me, uh, and at the time, her and my grandfather got diagnosed with like stage, is it stage four, stage five, whatever the most progressive stage of lung cancer is. Something uh, unfortunate is what you're saying. I'm not sure which, what we're talking about yet, but yeah, so a, an advanced stage malignancy of go. some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and they were only given uh, both. They were given like less than 18 months to live. Right around the same time? Both of the, at the same time that my whole, at right. the time, you know, smoking, smoking, smoking. And this is something I still do. I, admittedly, I, I smoke cigarettes. You know, it's not, it's not something I, I want to do. I was raised in a house where, you know, you would look up and there's billows of smoke. I mean, they're smoking packs and packs a day. You know, that's just how it yeah. was back then. You, you smoked around your kids and shit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so my grandmother told me that. And she said, look, in, in about in, in a couple months, you're not going to recognize me. She said, my hair is going to fall out. I'm going to look like a skeleton. She had curly red hair, just like this, this beautiful smile. And she was just my everything, you know? And then, um, I saw that happen. I saw her turn into a skeleton over the course of, so by the time she told me this when I was like, maybe, maybe three and a half, four, by the time I was five, cause I have a late birthday. My birthday's in December. I was in the first grade. I was five years old. She had died, uh, like the first week of school and I was back like the second week of school. And so at that point, I started really having, uh, I started disassociating from myself because that grief, there's a lot of grief that we don't deal with. And at such a young age as well. Yeah. And you lose the matriarch. And so when the matriarch is gone, you know, the family's in shambles. And so my grandfather, he, uh, and his way of dealing with, with, with the grief of losing the love of his life, he packed everything up and sold their, the family house and moved into his own place. My mother lost her mind. And at that point, she couldn't take care of me much, as much as possible, as much as as much as she should have as a mother. And so some of the things I went through as a kid, you know, my mom would kind of just be uh, in her room. She'd shut her door and just be crying, crying. I'm talking about like, I'm not trying to say white woman tears, but I mean like hyperventilating. (laughs) You know, as a child, that's psychologically uh, really messes with you because you want to be there for your mother. You're seeking the love and attention from your mother. And and that's something else to know is like postpartum is a thing, even when the child is a little bit older. Especially in the like the parent not having the support system, and and so you, if if the parent is going through something, it definitely affects the mother. And so then we go into like how it showed up. JB, back to your question is like once my grandmother died, my mother being uh, the hypochondriac that she is, and also I, I think borderline Munchausen, she just automatically said, you know what, you're depressed. You know, I was, I was mourning, I was grieving, you know. But I think if enough time were put into some type of therapy on that end, I wouldn't need, I wouldn't have been prescribed medication, but it was my mom's wish that around maybe eight or nine years old, I was put on depression medication. But growing up as an only child, being very isolated, my mother was also very strict. Like I was saying earlier, she would always put the fear into God into me about my father. And that goes for anybody. So she really wouldn't let me out of her sight. I wasn't really allowed out of the house. My mom is kind of doom and gloom, doomsday. She told me uh, most of my life she was going to die at a young age. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And so basically, um, by the time I was 10, I was like 200 pounds. And uh, by the time I was in the seventh grade, I was 240 pounds. And I was fully developed, precocious puberty. That's how it starts showing up. And it depends on the medication because the medication I was put on, I was misdiagnosed. And we'll get into that. But I was diagnosed as having, I guess, major depression. That's not my diagnosis. So I was put on medication that had me gain weight, that had me have a 
plastered smile right on my face. Like in middle school, they called me smiley. I couldn't help it. I was uh, nervous. I had nervous, you know, and, and aside from being socially awkward because being an only child and not being able to be around folks. So, so that's kind of how it looked for me. And then into adulthood, it was like, because my relationship with my mother, how crazy it got, I moved out at 17. I was like, fuck this. I don't want any rules. I'm on my own. This lady's crazy. And then I started trying to be the adult, right? And it's way harder, right? Than most of the kids think. And so working two jobs, trying to raise myself, moved out the house at 17, moved in with, moved in with a good friend who was also trying to escape her father. Uh, we had met at our first job in fast food. And the funny thing what is, could go first wrong? Of, okay, JB, what <laughs> could go wrong? First thing that happens is we move in. Her boyfriend is a ex-Marine. Again, mental health coming back from, I guess, Afghanistan, whatever was happening at that time and found out that's the first time I ever saw uh, <laughs> a heroin addict. And he's a white guy. Right. So going through, I always call it the turbulent 20s, because when you have a mental health diagnosis, whether or wh- whether you're diagnosed or not, if you're struggling with mental illness and it's not properly treated, you're going to do things that you can't control. A lot of it's impulse control. That's just how your brain works. You can't get it to work differently. Hold on, Tab. It's one of those. It's one of those pause moments again. Okay, we need to do a little breathing exercise here. Wow, you're talking about uh, turbulent twenties. Did you just hear all the stuff you talked about? We asked about. I asked about signs, symptoms, how this kind of manifests and revealed itself. And you, you really laid a lot of stuff on us and generational things. Let me just go back over a couple of things. You mentioned your mother an inappropriate or unhealthy relationship with food that she had in her relationship. You mentioned how some of that was put upon you as well. We talked about diagnosis and misdiagnosis, medication and improper medication, some of the negative effects that that had on you physically and emotionally being put on a medication that was inappropriate for what you were experiencing. Wow. Uh, (laughs) It's really something to go through. And, and just from, from sitting my perspective, I know you now. I know you as the, you know, the current formed version of yourself, the highly functional version of yourself. So really to understand and peel back these layers and see some of this, you know, some of this fabric that makes you and has made you who you are is really, it's a privilege, but it's really fascinating to understand that. Uh, you know, the human experience is just, remarkable and the resilience of that spirit is is even more so. So I just wanted to take a moment for myself and anybody listening to this journey so far so we can kind of get our bearings as you as you go into, you know, the part that that you now say is the wild part. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you, JB. I mean it mean it means a lot because when you deal with these kind of things, you know, Oh man, mental health is almost, I look at mental health like white privilege. When you have privilege, <laughs> you starting mm-hmm. up here. When, 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 you, when you don't have privilege, you're already at a disadvantage. When you have a mental health issue, in some cases it's treatable with therapy or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever. And, and sometimes you can't do it without medicine. And so there's so many days that I would wake up and just 
oh my God, like, what am I living for? What's out here for me? There's nothing everywhere I went. And, you know, going back to childhood, part of having a, a mother with mental illness and her, uh, you know, I'm always, I was always seeking my mom. I was always seeking validation that went into my later relationships with women, always seeking. And so when I was younger, although I knew that I kind of was like, not like born, I don't know if I was born gay, but I knew they got pictures of me kissing a girl when I was one year on my first birthday. Okay. They got, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I always loved women, but I was very uh, sexually promiscuous with men, older men, because uh, for validation, for, um, because it, uh, you know, again, going back to just like erratic behavior, just impulsive, like I'm 12 and this 24 year old is inviting me to his house for relations. Right. And, and it wasn't just one time. It was because I was, I guess, trying to kind of fill this void. Right. Because at the end of the day, I have no, no trust, no, like no foundation of trust, no boundaries. There's some serious episodes that you describe in here. How did you cope? We're talking about, you know, trying to treat uh, these depressions and things and how important medication is, the proper medication. What were you trying to do to cope during this period of time? And I do want you to speak a bit about the body keeps the score. Thank you. Thank you, JB. So how did I cope? So in my in my 20s, turbulent 20s, I coped by being codependent on other people. So when I moved out at 17, I'm 35 now about half my little over half my lifetime, I've lived with over, and it mainly happened in, in my 20s, like over 30 people in a 10 year time frame, And it's because of, you know, not having the stability from the jump, not having those values of self-love, um, being encouraged. You know, I was a straight A student in high school. I was taking honors classes, GP classes, always looking to shine and not really getting that validation. And so you're looking and you're looking and you find yourself relationship after relationship. So that's one thing. I found myself, you know, being very sexually uh, promiscuous with women. Um, when I finally I came out to my mom, I was like 15. I was like, look, I, I, I got caught up with boys. And so she used to respond to me in some cool mm. ways. Um, she called me a whore, a bitch, all these things. Right. And it's just how you were raised back in the 90s. Things were different. You you know, you can't you can't whoop your kid these days. Right. So it's just what it, it's just what it was. When I got when I used to get in trouble, she would put a bar of dub soap in my mouth. I wouldn't call it extreme abuse, but it is some definitely some uh, flowers in the attic type shit. I mean, we're from a different time. You know, we've made jokes about that. I've gotten in quite a bit of trouble about that because things that we grew up with are no longer acceptable. No longer. (laughs) (laughs) And so like going through like coping for me, anything I could get my hands on, self-medicating. I mean, of course, it started for me with cigarettes. I really got addicted to cigarettes around 15, 16. I had my first taste of the nightlife when I was 13. So one of my good friends, you know, I don't know if y'all remember the chat line back in the day. You hop on the chat line. She had no business being on there. I mean, she's 15. I'm 13. She goes, I got these boys from the city and they're going to take us out for the night, you know. And I remember the first time I went to this little bar in the city. I don't know how I got in there being being 13 years old. But of course, I look grown. And when I tell you, JB, from the, the moment that the alcohol touched my lips and, and the blunt touched my lips, I was like, damn, this is it. Showtime. So, yeah. Showtime. <laughs> and that was it, right? Always seeking this, yeah. this rush, this high, no matter what form. So if it came in sex, if it came in money, if it came in, you know, that's even still some of my mentality when it comes to business. You know, it's like always staying up. So I have to really find my peace and my balance in that. But, you know, it shows up like that. It shows up like uh, at my worst. So 
after a certain point, you know, I would try anything. Molly, I mean, you just get me on dippers. If you're in the DMV area, you know, you got a cigarette with, with embalming fluid, you know, and just really self-destructive for no damn reason. It seems exciting when you're a kid, right? But you, you're harming yourself, right? You really are. And so, again, I want to, you know, the effects that has on your body. I want you to talk a bit about that. I want you to talk about, you know, keeping the score and then retrospectively now loving your body, loving yourself. How did that transition come about? So first let's talk about keeping the score. Keeping the score. So your your body keeps the score. This is a book that my um, psychiatrist recommended and it really is. And I, I honestly, I haven't finished it. <laughs> it's very deep. So I had to kind of take breaks as I'm, I listen to it on audible, but it talks about not just how your body itself holds on to trauma physically, but how your mind makes decisions, like how your brain is wired to make decisions based on the trauma that you've been through. And in the beginning of the book, the author really looks at veterans and what they've gone through and how they process trauma. And he was one of the, you know, the leading doctors, I guess, uh, when PTSD became a diagnosis, right? So the body keeps the score. Definitely, I would recommend that for anybody that's that's dealing with trauma and ways to rewire your brain. You know, if you keep hitting your head against the wall, that's what happens when you're dealing with cycles and cycles of trauma. You know, after the drugs, JB, I tried. I said, you know what? I'm off the deep end. Who do I call? Jesus on the main. Get Jesus on the main line. I fell so heavy in the church that uh, my friends thought I was in a cult. <laughs> so after church. And mind you, I'm still hopping back to back relationships. I'm still changing locations. I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm always moving. That goes back to the instability. In my later 20s, I reached of like 275 pounds. At 275 pounds, I couldn't stand myself. I hated myself. I hated myself. I hated what I had gotten myself into. I, did, I didn't connect with my body, body dysphoria hating everything about myself. You know, it's very hard sometimes to look at yourself in the mirror and to face yourself, especially after all the trauma that you people through. People hurt people. It's more than that. Like hurt people push all their trauma on other people and expect them to, you know, like make up for their, you know, their childhood. And that's kind of how I governed my life um, in my 20s and, and, and I'm still learning now. And that's how I just attracted people with trauma. So of course you can imagine there was some intimate uh, partner violence there and there was all type of shit going on. The only thing that kept me through my 20s was I was able to keep my job at Verizon, which I got when I was 18. And so I had professional life. But going back to how it shows up as well, JB, even as a you know youngster growing up in telecommunications, um, I stayed there for 11 years. So from 18 to 29, and I was the youngest person there for a long time. I had a lot of people coach me on my appearance on because uh, I didn't have that growing up. You know, it just looked sloppy. I wasn't taught how to dress. One of my managers pulled me up one day. was like, what's up with the gel in your hair? Did you take a shower? At that point, I was sleeping 20 hours a day. I was not coming to work on time. I was burning through vacation time. I had to go out on short-term disability. I couldn't cope. And then finally, a friend of mine said, oh, man, you can't focus. This is going to help you. And then here I go again, trying some by drugs. So he gave me an Adderall. And I, don't, I do not, I'm not trying to advocate for this at all, but this is what helped me get a doctor get the right doctor to get the right diagnosis. And that's how I started loving myself. So he gave me an Adderall and he goes, look, I can't give you this shit forever. He said, you need to go ahead and get you a psychiatrist. Okay. <laughs> Cause you probably do need it. So Tab, let's, let's take a pause here 
And when we come back to this discussion for our final portion, we're going to talk, we're going to lift the cloud off of this conversation and let the sun shine through. We're going to let the, the sun shine through a little bit and talk about the right diagnosis. All right, look here. We're going to transition a little bit. You've brought us quite a ways from a lot of the backstory on uh, what your upbringing was like to running the streets and drinking and drugging to finally stumbling your way, perhaps in an ill-advised manner, but by the good grace of, of good fortune, you stumbled your way into a professional situation with a proper healthcare professional who got you a proper diagnosis and proper medication for that. Uh, and at this time, you were struggling with not only symptoms of you know sleeping, as you said, 20 hours a day and out of control, uh, your, your weight well over where you should be. Talk to me about what happens once you get yourself properly treated. Right. So it's almost like the veil was lifted, JB. I can't describe it any other way. Uh, somebody wants... Uh, when I really started taking my medication and you know what, taking medicine, you know, and that's it. A friend of mine said, well, you're going to be a medicine for the rest of your life. I said, let me tell you something. I don't plan on doing what I was doing for the last 25, 26 years of my life. I, I can't go another day, letting another day go by, letting my dreams fade to the back, letting my mind take over things. And so not that it's been at all easy breezy since then, you know, because you still have to deal with the consequences of all your actions, right? Cause and effect. So I put myself in a lot of situations financially, even being an entrepreneur. I mean, I quit my job at Verizon. You know, I had a good old, not government job. Yeah, but, you know, but damn near. Called. Yeah, you had the, them good wages. <laughs> Let me tell you something. After 11 years, you know, I worked my way up. And, I, yeah. and you know, I think the medicine was able to give me so much clarity and to start me out on the right foot every day and to get me motivated and to realize like, yo, you are well enough. You are good enough. You have a calling on your life. You can do this. What you were thinking, you weren't out of your mind. You just needed a little bit of a baseline. And that's what I mean about like relating mental illness to white privilege. That's what we're doing, Tab, and you know about it because you help you help create this. We're here to shift perceptions, right? So what perceptions are most important to you as relates to mental health, particularly minority mental health? And and quite frankly, you haven't really touched on anything. You mentioned very early about the implied mental health issues of QPA. I don't know if I'm saying that right, because it sounds Yeah, you Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And look, I, I let me tell you Q-Pac. something. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, I, I used to love Q-Pop. Wait a minute. Love this is different. <laughs> and why am I the go-to for that? I'm like the go-to for in between when white people have questions about black people, when anybody has questions about queer people. And I'm in between, you know, because I'm new school, old school. I'm going to share a confession with you because I got myself in a whole heap of trouble. Um, I was out here using outdated terms and my, my daughter, her head damn near exploded. Um, and she read me the riot act and and here's the confession. It turns out I'm it, it's shit. It turns out I'm a goddamn repeat offender, right? Of using the wrong terms and slurs and shit. So I, I have to go through a whole contrition oh, campaign. Yeah, I need like a whole fucking I need a whole goddamn uh um, training. Training <laughs> just to just to yeah. restore the faith in the family that daddy not a damn 
bigoted asshole. So, canceled, you know. y'all. JB's canceled, y'all. I, you heard it, it first. If she if she could cook for her goddamn self, she would have canceled my ass. That's the only thing to say to me is that I, I can feed her. Now all the queers know. Now they Just know. Black. Just black yes. is out of here. This dude don't know the sound of his mouth. I didn't know the term Tupac. I'm like, what y'all saying? Tupac, queer uh, person of color, or queer people of color, um, BIPOC, uh, black indigenous people of color, just really talking about black and brown communities and not marginalizing us, marginalizing us because we are actually the majority, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so many things that exist in these communities and it is implied, uh, I didn't know this, but I was talking to a doctor, a psychiatrist, and he was saying that, um, yeah, being a queer person of color implies that you you have trauma, you have some type of mental mental health issue. It's, yeah, it's almost the same way as, uh, and, and again, on your social, we're going to be sharing a lot of facts about mental health this month, but it's the same thing as, you know, it, being in urban environments, at-risk populations, it's implied that you have adverse childhood experiences and that you will, you know, prison the pipeline, pipeline to prison. That's just what systemically is set up to happen. That's really, it's really fascinating. I think it's so important though, and Look, I'm learning and evolving with this as well. And I think as it's learning and evolving in its own movement, but it is important for identities, regardless yeah. of what they are. And I think in our community, we have some stigmas about identities. We're not we're not having it right. We're not here for you to be identifying yourself with anything that we don't know about from before. And so, you know, it's so hypocritical, right? It's so hypocritical because here we are screaming to be identified and recognized in one respect, you, you, you got to afford that to everybody. If, if your identity is your identity, then we got to, we got to have a better dialogue about that and a better understanding about that and sensitivity to it. So I think it's important. So, I mean, I can't have you be the, the spokesperson for, for queer right. and, and, and all of that, you know, but I think it's, it's worth Pass that on, but yeah, it's worth bringing into the conversation though, about how in your personal journey, how that was affect, affecting you. And again, the question is, what perceptions do you want to help shift with your being, with your presence, with your with your mission and your work? So shifting perceptions, I really want people to know, especially black and brown people. And, you know, by the way, I subscribe to the ideology that if you have a drop of black in you, then you're Uh black. Okay. But All sometimes you need is one claim, drop. <laughs> but sometimes I'll claim mix, but especially for black people, I can't stress enough that you can do this. You can, I don't want to say you're demons, right? But you can grab yourself by the bootstraps. You can, all you have to do is like make a call. I know it's not that easy. There are barriers um, to, in healthcare. Not everybody can afford the best healthcare. Um, especially, you know, in Maryland, a lot of folks are on Medicaid. It may be hard. Uh, we're going to give some, we'll give some like uh, mental health resources, but I just want y'all to know that it's possible for you to save yourself, save yourself. That's what Jesus would have wanted. And I ain't gonna lie. He said, after me, you'll do greater works. Okay. So you better save your damn self, get yourself out the mud the best way possible. That's it, JB. Like shifting perceptions for me is internally uh, letting our people know that are struggling with with mental health. Usually, a lot of times in urban populations, is also again associated with substance use. That we could do it, and that's one step at a time. And you can also live your dreams. For me, my dream, like doing this with you, JB, this is a dream, right? Like being able to talk about this kind of thing, um, helping other business owners and entrepreneurs and, and folks like yourself, influencers, to grow their platform. So. 
um, just you can do this. And I, that's all I can say. Right. Like, no, after it's, all it's, this it's, shit- it's, it's a powerful thing to come out of that fire. And as I said, I know you now. I see the creativity and the brilliance that's there now to think that that was being obscured or smothered or or dampened for years you know, is really, uh, it's it's a shame and it's heartbreaking. So we, we all have to understand how to, I think, recognize that in ourselves. If we're struggling with something, recognize that with others. And look, I'm of that age. I told you, I don't know what to say out of my mouth. I don't know what to recognize. And even with my own kids, when they are saying, I'm struggling with something, okay? I think we, as, as this generation of, of parents looking down, we have to soften our eyes and educate ourselves to understand if they're screaming out about something, you probably want to listen and take it seriously. You go to the Department of Health statistics, you know, uh, black girls in high school, grades nine to 12, 60% more likely to commit suicide than their non-black partners. And when it happens, you see our community respond inadequately, uh, insufficiently. And we can't do that. We can't trivialize what their their struggles were, and it was this. Or, no, there's there's some real things going on here. JB, that's so real. And you know, not to not to drag this out, but like you know, there's you can't compare trauma for trauma, right? Just me sharing my story. You know, I feel bad for my homegirls. That I mean, uh, you know, especially if we talk about the crack ep- epidemic in the inner city. Their parents might have been on crack, uh, sold them out at ten years old to their crack dealer. Sex yeah. for crack, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. At 10. These are real and, stories. And, and These are left. real things. Yeah. Real things, right? Being left with uncles who molested them, older cousins who molested them, and they still, and when you look at, and, and I hate when white people say, well, why can't you just get a job? I don't know, bitch, because I can't wake up every day and be in my right fucking mind. I'm not in my white mind. Yeah. Okay. Because I wasn't yeah. given a fair chance. And that's truly like, that's, that's really what's behind it, right? You have people who most of your frontline workers during COVID are, you know, they're all black. And if you ask a lot of, and a lot of them are sisters, right? And our brothers, a lot of them are locked up or whatever's happening, right? They can't get jobs because maybe they've been locked up. But when you look at that and you see these sisters out here and you ask them some of the things they've been through, you will quickly understand how resilient and how much trauma um, and, and what they're trying to do about it to change their own narrative. So that's like power to the people on that one, men and women. Because I know you got a uh, shout out to Mr. Bobby Holmes coming up next. Yes, after me. indeed. So he's yes, gonna indeed. Throw that out the wall. He's, he's going he's gonna to help us with that. And, you know, one component of this is there's a lot of false narratives. And there is a bravado out there that, you know, no, I'm good. And denying your own experience, denying your own emotional oh. health and well-being. And, and this is not healthy. It's not helpful. Um, and it's something else that we need to kind of uh, address and deconstruct in our communities and yeah. amongst ourselves because we're not invincible. We're not superheroes. No. We're not people who don't need partnerships and love and intimacy. Yeah, no, we need all these things. These are human conditions. And if we're missing these things or we need help or assistance, we need to seek that out. So we will be providing some resources uh, for anybody and trying to just put it out there and bring awareness to this Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, because all of us, regardless of ethnicity, race, nationality, we go through the same things. And it's not always flowers and sunshine. And that's okay. But uh, we, we definitely need to have resources because sometimes you need a helping hand. Talking about all the, uh, the tough guys and gals that's out here saying what they don't need while they got all this weed blowing out their mouth. 
And they talk about how they don't need no help and don't need no medication. Oh my gosh, JB. And you're hitting on so many things. And you know what? Those those kids, and I got a lot of lot of youngins, you know, Baltimore, we say dummy. What up, dummy? I got a dummy. A lot of my my young bros, you would say, I, I attract a lot of people with me. <laughs> of course, you know, you attract who, who you are, right? Or or whomever you're supposed to, right? So as I'm dealing with my trauma and things and I'm a little bit little bit further matured and they're going through theirs, you know, I, I, I try to Check on my little bro. I, I, I'm thinking of one in, in specific, and and his mother was very active in trying to get him enrolled into some mental health program. And you know, again, you know, you in a mental fog. You can't see yourself. You don't think you're in a bad predicament. So when you, I'm talking to him. I'm like, hey, bro, what's going on? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. All is well. I'm good. No, it's not. You okay? And so to your point, sometimes we have to ask more specific questions. What are your thoughts in this moment? How were you feeling as we're talking? What transpired earlier today? Sometimes we have to do more than, hey, are you good? And um, somebody just brought that to my attention a couple of days ago um, because I always ask uh, this person, how you doing? Are you okay? That's not enough, right? Little broskies and, and, and anybody, anybody who's just like trying to self-medicate. It's not just younger people, it's older people. I mean, it's people all over, all over, like you said, every race. And we just got to, don't get me wrong. I love I love uh, Mary Jane. OK, but there's a way to do it. And, and I would say as much as possible, get a psychiatric diagnosis first. Get your evaluation and get a mental health diagnosis. Just see, just get evaluated before you try to add on any damn thing else. I don't care if it makes you feel good, uh, because all it's going to do is exacerbate the issue. You're going to be in a dream world until the high comes down. And for those of you who do self-medicate, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because as soon as you run out of weed and your high comes down and your friends are gone, you're back in the same deep asshole and your ass ain't digging out of it. And so it's time to really say, I'm ready to change. I'm going to get help. If you can confide in somebody, if you need help kind of getting there, we got to provide some resources, JB, about how to reach out and how to go about that. And I think Bobby can give more insight, but I'll also get... Um, you know, because even there's national mental health lines that you can uh, text if you need to. And then, you know what? One more thing to add, though, too. A lot of times we don't seek out uh, mental health help because and we're going to keep we're going to talk about this on social. But there's been so much trauma in the black community like uh, and, and, you know, therapists, uh, any uh, teachers, uh, people are mandated reporters. And so if I'm going through a traumatic issue, how much can you share? And you might be at the place where you're seeing a younger sibling being neglected is so impactful to your life and your mental health and, and the trauma that your parent imposed on you, but you can't, you can't tell too much. And then you end up dropping out of therapy because um, you, your baby brother might be taken away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is all, it's an expansive topic. Obviously we can't cover all of it, but what, what I hope we accomplished today today is that we introduced the opportunity to embrace the discussion um, just to get things going, you know, get things out there realize that nobody's alone in these experiences. We all have these challenges in our lives, but there is a way out uh, to triumph over these things and to lift that fog and to let your real brilliance show. And so I think, uh, you know, thank you, Tab, for coming and giving so much of yourself and your story. It really is amazing. That's not a lifetime series, though, baby. That's more cable. Like, you know, we're going, it's a little bit too graphic for lifetime. <laughs> but pra- praise God for all of it. You know, the, the ups and the downs, the ins and outs. And JB, thank you for this platform. Like, seriously, like, 
Thank you for following your vision and allowing us to use your platform to uh, you're you're amplifying our voices. So just thank you for continuing to push through. I know that everybody does struggle. And, and I think when you have a, a mental health challenge, you think you're the only one in it. So it's important to know that you're not. And it's, it's important to know that things are, are temporary and they're not as bad as they could be. But JB, you are a doctor, Dr. Black. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll call you JB, but you're so humble. You talk, we talk about people being humble. Nah. And you just came off of a what hour shift? 20 hours? <laughs> a, a too damn many. <laughs> yeah. I mean, y'all, this guy is working. I mean, taking, uh, you doing podcasts after, yeah, too many shifts in a row. Yeah, and well. I mean, that's impactful too. And you're a daddy. And so thank you for just like pushing things to the limit so that our voice can be heard and to try to impact our community and just much love to, even though I talk shit about white people, I love y'all so much. Just, uh, yeah. you got yeah. look, we, we, we love them all, but we love us. And that's what we're trying to focus on here. You know, of course, so much support and love in our lives from non-Blacks. And it's so vital across the world, obviously. You know, we, we have to share the positivity. But right now, we're focusing in the Minority Month, and it's a yeah. neglected month, okay? There's yes. healthcare disparities that are real about under-treatment, under-diagnosis, misdiagnosis. All these things are real. As humans, we have to love all of us completely. And, you know, want the best for everybody, want the best access, want the best treatment and support. And, and so that's what it is. So I love me some some black folks and Tab. Thank you very, very much. And you out here spoiling what I got coming up. We're going to talk to Bobby when we talk to Bobby. He going to come out here and bring it to us. <laughs> my favorite therapist. One of my favorites. I got. I mean, he, he is amazing and he's doing Woo! tremendous work in our in our favorite Baltimore with another demographic. Um, uh, young men. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll get with that on the next episode. But for today, we are wrapping up uh, with Tab Wallet, not in her white mind. <laughs> Let me know if yeah. y'all want a full special. I'll put that put a little yeah. something. Yeah, yeah we got, got, you got to get the whole thing. You got to get the whole Netflix special about that one. That's pretty good. That's where we're at. I think that's it for now. As always, if you uh, enjoyed listening to us, shoot us the comments, hit us up on Instagram, just black talking. What else, Ted? You do it. You you take us off of this thing. Tell them what. Tell the people what they need to do for us. Oh, you know what? We just talked about that yesterday, guys. If you like this, if you like this episode, we are really trying to. Just Black is magnifying the successes and stories of uh, Black America and shifting perceptions on Blackness in America. So we need y'all to comment whatever platform you're listening to. We need your feedback. We need your testimonials. We need you to leave a review. Leave a review, y'all. Let let the let the people know how, how impactful this is. If you felt it to be beneficial, if you didn't, let us know that too, so we can work on that. You know, we got to mm-hmm. be transparent. But yeah, that's what we need. We need some reviews so we can repost those uh, from yeah. a strategic perspective. See, there you go. You making me do all the damn work. Yeah, you talk. You do some work up here. Shit. <laughs> share, just share it, and, and we'll keep it moving. But yeah, I think that's. That's what we have to work on, JB, is really spreading the word and getting organic engagement. And we need y'all to really let us know what do you want to hear? What do you like? What do you not like? And how do you want us to engage with you? You know, we're yeah. going to start doing little quizzes, little things and the stories. So just look out for it. We got it coming. So, all right, Tab, we done ran extra long here today. I that's know. enough. So um, that's it, y'all. Another episode in the books. <laughs> <laughs>
as we say, those of us that remember what books look like. <laughs> I'm old Thank enough. You. I tell people I was born before food allergies. You know, I, I'm too old for that. <laughs> but uh, that's it for Just Black Talking, y'all. We talk to you later. Just Black Talking.